The History Channel Original Podcast. You talk about coming into office with a full plate. Lincoln's immediately tasked with trying to preserve a union together that is already falling apart. After Fort Sumter, Washington, D.C. is basically defenseless. There are a lot of troops in Washington, D.C., and for the volunteers that Lincoln has called up, they must get to Washington. Baltimore was a very pro-Southern city. It's the largest city in the slaveholding South and proud of that. Soldiers open fire. People are killed. Soldiers are killed. It's a shocking moment. Here at the moment of national peril, when the president calls out troops to suppress a rebellion, rioters in the streets attempt to prevent them? From the History Channel, this is Making Lincoln. I'm Andre DeShields. It's April 1861. Abraham Lincoln has just officially become President of the United States, and already the House is on fire. Seven states have seceded, taking many federal arsenals with them. One of the few remaining Union outposts in the South is in dire need of resupply. Confederate troops do not want to see that happen. On April 12th, Confederate troops attacked the vulnerable arsenal of Fort Sumter. After just two days of fighting, the United States Army surrenders and the American Civil War begins. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At the start of the war, the United States Army only has about 15,000 troops total. The president calls for another 75,000 troops. Some slaveholding states that are still in the Union refuse to answer the call. Instead, four of them secede. One of those states is Washington, D.C.'s closest neighbor, Virginia. That leaves the United States Capitol perched uncomfortably on the edge of the new Confederacy. Historian Barton Meyer says that's a very dangerous position. Lincoln had to wonder... Is the capital in Washington now an isolated island, a federal jurisdiction in a sea of insurrection and rebellion? As an outsider, Lincoln is on shaky ground within the capital. He's constructed a cabinet out of a group of people who were just recently his political rivals. But historian Mary Frances Berry says... Lincoln is far more concerned with the fate of the country than with intra-party politics. Lincoln is not allowing the South to just go its merry old way without challenging it because the democracy that America had created was unique in the world. It's important to remember, Lincoln's just one generation removed from Washington and Adams and Jefferson. He feels his generation has the responsibility to keep that experiment going. That's historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. She tells us, 
Lincoln believes deeply in the spirit under which this country was founded. And so the fact that states have seceded infuriates him. He refuses to accept their threat to this great but fragile experiment. Instead, Lincoln makes a bold decision. In the face of civil war, he needs more authority to halt the rebellion. He creates a new presidential power, which he calls the war power. He writes, I may, in an emergency, do things on military grounds which cannot be done constitutionally by Congress. The first thing Lincoln does with his new power is to order a blockade between the North and South. This suspends cotton exports from the South and crucial imports like weapons from the North. The war power also gives him a major new legal power. Lincoln declares the suspension of habeas corpus in Maryland, in Pennsylvania. The military can now arrest people at will and imprison them without the necessity of a court hearing. These measures, coupled with the North's larger population, could tip the war in the Union's favor. More people means more soldiers. But the South had an almost invisible army, and that was the army of slaves. These were the people who did the drudge work of the army. These were the people who performed all the camp duties. This would benefit the Confederate army a great deal. This invisible army, not surprisingly, does not want to fight for the side that is determined to keep them enslaved. Now, wherever there was a substantial Union Army presence, enslaved people were pretty much doing what they had done even before the Civil War, which was to seek freedom. That's historian Manisha Sinha. She says the freedom sought by enslaved people raises a big question. And it creates a logistical problem. What is the status of these people? Remember, the Fugitive Slave Act has been in place for over 10 years. That means that under the law, enslaved people who cross into free states and are caught are supposed to be returned. But what happens when they come from a state that no longer recognizes the authority of the United States of America? Lincoln's answers to this question will have enormous implications because not all slaveholding states have seceded. Four are still in the Union. Ignoring the Fugitive Slave Act is likely to alienate those states. The most important thing to recognize is it's not just the North against the South. It's the North itself that is divided by different factions. There are peace Democrats who want to stop the war immediately. Those are the Copperheads. On the other hand, you have war Democrats. The war Democrats are willing to fight, but only to restore the Union, not for emancipation. There are also Republicans who favor emancipation and Republicans who only want to see the Union reunited. Lincoln is trying to balance a dangerously polarized nation. For now, he's playing it safe, ignoring his personal views. His goal is to keep the fight about unification, not slavery. Manisha Sinha says that ignores the reality of the situation. Right at the start, enslaved people view the Union Army, Lincoln, as their liberators before they view themselves in that role. Because Lincoln is very nervous at the start of the war to keep the border slave states within the Union. Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. He said, we can't afford to lose these states. Just a few months into the war, 
This political and moral clash comes to a head in Hampton, Virginia. Union forces are stationed there at Fort Monroe, a Union fort within a Confederate state. Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer tells us, enslaved people learn of this Union stronghold and flock there in search of freedom. Enslaved African-Americans began taking boats in the dead of the night to the federal installation at Fort Monroe, commanded by General Benjamin Butler, a New England politician. Virginia's slaveholders come to the fort to demand their fugitive property, and Butler has to make a call. Will he recognize the Fugitive Slave Act for a Confederate state? He makes a politically savvy choice. Butler said, I declare you contraband of war. You're here in camp, you may stay in camp. And Lincoln did nothing to countermand the decision, which led to the self-emancipation of tens of thousands of African-Americans. After Butler's decision, the rule becomes official. Any fugitive slave who aids the Confederate efforts is considered contraband of war and effectively freed, which means this won't affect the slaveholding states in the Union. So for now, this war remains a war against the Confederacy, not slavery. But the people who clearly see this as a war about slavery are abolitionists, are African Americans. People like Frederick Douglass. Kenneth Morris, founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, says Douglas did not agree with Lincoln's strategy. Frederick Douglass was a few years ahead of everybody, including Lincoln. He had moved the family to Rochester, New York, to publish the North Star newspaper, which became the leading abolitionist voice. Douglas believed that the Civil War was about ending slavery, ridding the country of this horrific institution. Not every American in the Union felt the fervent call to abolition. But historian Caroline Janney says, by the summer of 1861, almost everyone in the North was feeling the time to act was now. By June, the largest field army the United States has ever seen with about 35,000 men under the command of Irvin McDowell is stationed in Washington. Now, Lincoln's not trained in military science. He will check out books from the Library of Congress, but he's really trying to figure out what it means to be commander-in-chief. But Lincoln doesn't have much time to read. A month after his army is assembled, the North faces its first battle, the Battle of Bull Run. Union forces under McDowell marched south into northern Virginia for the first encounter of the war, very close to Washington. It happens around the town of Manassas. The battle is alternatively called Bull Run because that was a creek on the battlefield. When the battle begins, Lincoln has high hopes. Here's United States Army War College professor Doug Dowds. Lincoln's expectation going into the first battle of Bull Run is that the war will be settled in this one battle. The South will win its independence or the North will put down the rebellion. Both armies are green, not a lot of experience. Lincoln isn't the only one thinking this war would be over after a single battle. Caroline Janney says, Civilians turn out in droves to watch the fight, like it's some entertainment spectacle. 
even though it seems so foreign to us, there was a great deal of excitement. There was a great deal of war enthusiasm. Keep in mind the technology of the time. We had no way to see a battlefield. People had seen paintings and sketches. And the notion was that these men are in formations and firing at each other, but it must be relatively safe. And people really thought this would be their only chance to see one battle. The spectators bring picnic baskets and sit on top of a hill, looking down onto the valley where the battle is about to begin. The Union Army cross the creek. They wage an attack against this very formidable force of Confederates. The Union Army starts off strong, pushing the Confederate forces back. But that afternoon, their opponents rally and counterattack. Historian Greg Jackson. Federal troops hear the terrifying rebel yell, this high-pitched yelping. Union troops described it as otherworldly. It had enormous results, let's put it that way. The Confederates start pushing back, and the Federals cross back across the creek in a mad dash. They have been completely routed. Harold Holzer tells us this turn takes the spectators by surprise. Citizens of Washington who had gone down in their carriages and set up picnic baskets on the bluffs overlooking the battlefield, they were having a high old time. And then when the battle turned, their picnic baskets were upended. They fled in disarray. The impact of the loss on Lincoln is brutally stark. Here's retired Army General Stan McChrystal. For Lincoln now, the defeat is not something that happens hundreds of miles away that you read about. You see wounded soldiers, defeated soldiers, soldiers who've thrown away their arms come streaming right back into the capital. So the idea of a disaster became tangible. You could see it, you could smell it. It's probably his first military error. And on that day, Lincoln realized that this was not going to be a brief war. It was going to be a long war. The uncertainty in the capital is palpable, says Caroline Janney. It's not clear that the remaining defenses around Washington can handle a Confederate army breaching the capital city. What if they do manage to capture the White House? The Confederates could have followed up and might have made their way into Washington, D.C. They don't. That's because the Southern troops are also in bad shape after Bull Run. And this gives Lincoln a brief moment to consider his next move. The only way you grow is by being able to acknowledge the mistakes you've made. So Lincoln gets out of the White House and he goes and sees the soldiers. The soldiers feel an intense bond with Lincoln. He's like them. He comes from a small town. He grew up with nothing. He never talks down to them. It makes them trust him and love him. Author David Reynolds says, despite the defeat in battle, Lincoln is able to garner even more support for the war. There was such an incredible war spirit that really people of all grades of life were volunteering for the military. Lawyers, teachers, politicians. Lincoln now calls 500,000 troops, and he realizes that these men are going to need better leadership. Lincoln thinks he might know the perfect man for the job. In 1861, George B. McClellan is a 34-year-old, very successful railroad manager. He had gone to West Point. He had a distinguished career in the Mexican-American War. On paper, McClellan sounds perfect. In November of 1861, 
Lincoln offers him the role of General-in-Chief of the Union Army. Lincoln says to him, you are in charge of all the United States forces, including those out west. You need to come up with a strategic plan for that. But you are also in charge of the principal field army in the east. And McClellan, in his ever-confident way, says, I can do it all. But McClellan also believes fighting the Confederate forces won't be easy. By the fall, the war is all around Washington. There was a huge infusion of soldiers camping in its public spaces, ringing the city to protect it from Confederate attack. And the war comes home to the White House in a deeply personal way. Six months into the war, Lincoln's good friend Edward Baker dies on the battlefield. It's a crushing blow. They've known each other for over 20 years. Lincoln's second son was named Edward Baker Lincoln. His other son, Willie, loves him like an uncle. When Lincoln called for troops, his old friend had stepped up, even though he was a sitting senator. The day before Edward Baker would lose his life, he came to the White House to see Lincoln, and it was a beautiful autumn day, and Willie was playing in the leaves. And as Edward Baker got up to leave, he put his arms around him and kissed Willie. Willie loved him. When Lincoln gets the news of Baker's death, he's devastated. Doris Kearns Goodwin. It was said by a reporter that his chest heaved with emotion when he got the telegram in the office and that he just stumbled out onto the street with tears streaming down his face. His friend's death hardens Lincoln's resolve to move fast and win this war. And initially, he has the confidence that McClellan can do it. At first, McClellan does a stellar job. He was great when it came to organization. He had the Army of the Potomac drilled, their camps were clean, and McClellan's men are very dedicated to him. There's lots of support from the Northern press, and all of this adulation goes to his head. Behind Lincoln's back, McClellan mocks him. General Stanley McChrystal says, McClellan considers Lincoln a frontier hick. He thinks he knows best and doesn't pay much attention to Lincoln's orders. He would write letters to his wife and describe how he was selected to be the savior. And he would describe President Lincoln as the baboon or the gorilla. And he would pretty openly tell people that this guy doesn't understand. He needs to get out of my way and let me handle this. McClellan decides to keep his battle plans from Lincoln. But he does tell Lincoln that he needs more time to train his troops before he can launch an attack. Lincoln agrees but now has to answer to politicians in Washington. At this point, there is a committee called the Joint Committee on the Conduct of War, and it is filled with radical Republicans, men who want to move fast, who are certainly pushing for emancipation, and they're becoming increasingly frustrated with McClellan as well. With pressure from every side, Lincoln's political skills are once again put to the test. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lincoln is in a tough position. At the start of the war, he sent an inexperienced army into the battle at Manassas, and they were defeated. Now Major General McClellan is asking for more time to train his army. Lincoln tells McClellan, I will protect you from political pressure. But at the same time, Lincoln must answer to the growing political pressure to act. The Confederates were actively pursuing formal recognition on the international stage. And in 1861, they're in the process of sending their emissaries to England and to France. And they are on the British ship, Trent, which is stopped by a U.S. naval vessel. They're taken off of that ship and detained. But this is a risky move. The British Navy is supreme at the time. They do not like the United States Navy taking anyone from their ship. They demand the release of the Confederate emissaries, or they'll consider this an act of war. Lincoln is in a classic dilemma situation. Republican Northerners who had voted for him want trial for treason for these men, but he also had to keep England on the sideline. So he's ultimately got to release these diplomats and let them go about their business. Lincoln needs public support, so he decides to court the newspapers to his cause. Newspapers were not just independent journals of the day, they were part of the political machine. John Wayne Forney was a Washington editor, very influential politically, and Forney became a frequent visitor to the White House. Lincoln uses his relationship with Forney to his advantage. He asks the editor to write a piece in support of the emissary's release. Forney is hesitant, but eventually agrees. And public opinion shifts in Lincoln's favor. For now. Meanwhile, McClellan is still training his troops. Feeding and housing these volunteer soldiers is expensive. And for all the money they're spending, there's little to show for it. The North is not gaining ground. At this point, Lincoln is feeling like the war isn't being pressed hard enough, and so he's going to take more direct control. So Lincoln gives one of his first general orders. Historian Timothy Smith. The famous general orders number one, which requires all of his commanders to go on the offensive and to attack actually by Washington's birthday on February the 22nd. McClellan just ignores this, makes no movement whatsoever and the only one actually to move is Ulysses S. Grant out west. Today, we all know Grant as the 18th president of the United States, and before that, as the Union general who led the North to victory in 1865. But at the beginning of the war, no one would have guessed he'd become either of these. Ulysses S. Grant had gone to West Point, not performed especially well, 
When the war begins, he is clerking in the small town of Galena, Illinois. But according to General Stan McChrystal, it doesn't take long for Grant to prove his worth. When the Civil War starts, he volunteers to help train troops. And pretty quickly, he shows that he's got competence not just in training, but in leading in battle. Grant is stationed in the westernmost part of the Union. In response to General Order Number 1, Grant aims to overtake two Confederate forts in Tennessee, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. There's a lot riding on this. The Union desperately needs a victory. Doug Dowd says, luckily for the Union, they get one. Ulysses S. Grant will take Fort Henry and Donaldson in the beginning of February. With this, Grant becomes a national hero. It's the first great Union victory of the war. When the news arrives in Washington, Lincoln is ecstatic. But problems at home soon overshadow his celebratory mood. It's a little bit ironic, the jubilation of the capture of Fort Henry and Donaldson because Lincoln is in major crisis mode because it's this same time period that his little boy Willie catches typhoid. In February of 1862, Willie had fallen ill. He probably contracted typhoid fever from bad water pumped into the White House. At first, they think that he'll be fine, but on February 20th, 1862, he dies. When Willie died, Lincoln put his head in his hands and simply began to sob and then said, my boy is gone, my boy is gone. After the death of Willie, Lincoln is overcome with grief. He puts a silk ribbon on his hat so that he will always remember the loss of his son. Mary was of course distraught, took to her bed and never really recovered, I think, from the loss of her beloved son. He had those qualities of empathy, sensitivity, intelligence that Lincoln had. So he was like a miniature Lincoln. I think there's something to that. No matter how painful this moment is for Lincoln, there's still a war to be fought, a nation counting on him to do his job. A few months later, in April of 1862, Lincoln receives good news from the campaign in the West. Grant has prevailed again in Tennessee, the Battle of Shiloh, but the victory comes with great casualties. The reaction to Grant at Shiloh was largely negative. All of a sudden, he loses 13,000 troops. There are unfounded rumors of Grant being drunk, and people are calling for his ouster. But Lincoln says, I cannot spare this man, he fights. And that was the beginning of Grant's ascendancy. And Lincoln's recognition in Grant, someone who would not go back, who would not wait, who would not delay. On the battleground surrounding Washington, General McClellan is making slow advances. Even though Lincoln disagreed with the plan, McClellan is determined to attack the Confederate capital in Richmond, Virginia, advancing from the south. McClellan's troops are stationed at Fort Monroe. He'll need to fight his way north up the peninsula to Richmond. Lincoln, frustrated that McClellan is not following his orders, decides to meet his general in person. This time, when Lincoln arrives down at Fort Monroe, McClellan's not there, and it's one more insult to Lincoln and his responsibilities. 
And so Lincoln's now looking around going, okay, well, I can't meet with McClellan. What else is going on down there? Hey, isn't that Norfolk? Across the river from Fort Monroe, Lincoln can see the city of Norfolk, Virginia. When Virginia seceded, Confederate troops had taken over the city's major naval base and its ironclad warship, the CSS Virginia. This is a threat to the Union Army as well as to the blockade. It's also a threat to McClellan's effort to get up the river. The ship has massive firepower. It will be hard to attack. But as Lincoln looks out over the river, he has an idea. This is the thing about Lincoln. All the experiences that he had in his life, they become part of who he is. And he's got a real physical sense of how to operate on a river. Instead of a direct attack on the warship, Lincoln suggests an amphibious landing to overtake the base. But the water is too shallow for the Union's larger ships. So Lincoln proposes they use canal boats, light craft that can navigate the shallow waters. The officers with Lincoln are hesitant at first, but realize that maybe there is something to his plan. And they were right. When the Confederates see the Union troops, they're going to leave Norfolk. They'll destroy as much of the equipment as they can, including sinking the CSS Virginia, their ironclad. And effectively, Abraham Lincoln has taken the initiative. He's literally leading from the front. Which was then, and now, unheard of for a sitting president. Lincoln, when he arrives down at Norfolk, it's a massive overreach. The president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, should not be in tactical operations. He has basically undercut his entire chain of command, almost as if to say, even a non-professional, all it takes is a little bit of initiative. All it takes is a little bit of activity. All it takes is a little bit of a watchful eye to see where those opportunities exist, and we can start making progress at a faster pace than we currently are. Despite the overreach of power, Lincoln's plan showed strength, and it succeeded. There was a certain method to his madness. He was impatient. He was trying to send a message to General McClellan. Get moving. Though this is a major victory for the Union, it doesn't dramatically change McClellan's battle strategy. He slowly moves his troops up the peninsula, getting closer to Richmond, Virginia. It's slower than Lincoln would like, but McClellan is confident in his plan. The uncertainty of the battlefield, the idea that you're rolling the dice on the battlefield every time was very upsetting to him. And so it would cause him to hesitate. It isn't so much in my view that he's indecisive. He is choosing to do what one might call light sparring. He doesn't want to have a high body count. He just kind of wants to sneak in, slap somebody around a little bit, step on back and keep on moving. You know, he's sending advance scouts to the plantations and farms along the way to say, hey, I'm coming through, but I'm not going to mess with your slaves and I'm not going to burn anything. We're just going to be moving my army through. And McClellan's strategy seems to work. Eventually, the Confederates will retreat back all the way till within earshot of the church bells of Richmond. The Union is closing in, and one of the Confederates' best commanders is severely wounded in battle. What might have been a death knell for the Confederate Army instead launches their most successful leader. Robert E. Lee is probably the most iconic soldier in American history. He had had tremendous service during the Mexican War. And so on the eve of secession, President Lincoln sought to have Robert E. Lee take command of United States forces. Robert E. Lee makes the decision instead 
to go with Virginia. That June of 1862, Lee becomes the leader of the Confederacy's most powerful army, the Army of Northern Virginia. While Lee is organizing his men, McClellan's forces are right outside the gates of Richmond, but they're stuck in the mud, literally. For the next three weeks, it's going to be incredibly rainy, and McClellan's not able to do much. If you can imagine moving an army of 120,000 men with all of their mules and horses and wagons. But Lincoln believes that this capital can be taken. McClellan has more men than has ever been fielded in North America. This could all be ended right now. But that's not what happens. Instead, Lee launches a series of attacks that push McClellan back from Richmond's doorstep. In the last weeks of June, McClellan's army had suffered a crushing defeat. They were only like four miles from Richmond when Lee attacked them and they were forced to retreat. So the mood of the North was really at its lowest point, lower even than after Bull Run. Enlistments were going down, desertions were going to happen, and Lincoln felt that something had to change. That something might alienate a lot of his own men, including Major General McClellan. He and Lincoln aren't seeing eye to eye on a lot of things, including how and why they're fighting this war. What he says is it should be executed with the highest Christian principles, that they should take no Southern property, that they should not try and subdue the South, and that whatever we do, let's not talk about the issue of slavery. Months earlier, Lincoln might have agreed with him, but he doesn't now. The war has made Lincoln resolute, and he now has blood on his hands. I think what kept Lincoln up at night sometimes was just knowing how many soldiers had died that day and that he was the leader that was in charge of this decision to keep the war going and that these people had died, their families were suffering under the terrible loss. Lincoln knows that the loss of life is unavoidable, but he has to believe that this sacrifice will ultimately be worth it. That is, if the Union is victorious. There were so many times when it looked like the war would be lost. After Bull Run, it certainly looked that way. After the Peninsula Campaign, it looked like the war could easily be lost. But he was the one who kept the spirit of the army, keeps the spirit of the people going. He absorbed those losses, and it just makes him think, what can I do differently? How can I change what's going on? Now, midway through 1862, Lincoln is beginning to consider a new way to put pressure on the Confederacy. It's a bold move, even a radical one, but it may be his best option. Over the summer, Lincoln is talking to people about what will become the Emancipation Proclamation. He's talking to his War Department, he's talking to the State Department. Lincoln still believed that the Constitution made it impossible for the government to emancipate the slaves because Constitution protected property and property was slaves. And yet, just six months later, Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. How does Lincoln resolve this constitutional paradox? And why does he believe this is his next best move? That's next time on Making Lincoln. Making Lincoln is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. 
McKamey Lynn, supervising producer, and Julie Magruder, producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from James Hansen. Abraham Lincoln was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. 